How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 153 of X-Lapsed, where we're going to be taking a look at the next issue of X-Force. Uh, we're going to hop right on in. This is X-Force, volume 6, number 16, which had a March 2021 cover date. Stories called Into the Deep, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Joshua Kassara. Colors, Guru EFX, letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edit Samaro Basso White Sobolski, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale January 20 of 2021. Now we open with Beast and Cecilia Reyes examining one of those zombified sailors who washed up on the Krakoan shores at the end of last issue. So I guess we're not going to get the fight scene that went down between them and Domino and Tom then. I guess that's fair enough. I guess we don't need to waste a page or two with the SmackDown here. Uh, let's just hope that we don't get an extra couple of info pages to make up for it. Now, Cecilia, you know, anybody remember her code name? I, I don't even know if it ever made it into the actual books. Uh, it might have just been for promotional material or maybe previews catalogs. But I remember she had one. I just don't remember what it was off the top of my head. And unfortunately, a whole lot of my ex-ephemera is still at the other house, so I uh, don't have an avenue to uh, check that out. So if anybody remembers, please let me know. Anyway, Cecilia has the zombie wrapped up in one of her force fields to keep it from catching her off guard. You know, like what happened with the Russian nesters a few issues back that wound up actually killing Cecilia and uh, was uh, shrugged off by uh, Sage and Beast, of course. Um, From here... It's a double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. The characters we'll be focusing on today are Beast, Cecilia Reyes, Domino, Black Tom Cassidy, Phoebe Cuckoo, Wolverine, Forge, and... Huh, Kid Omega. Hmm. Okay. Well, we check out the beach where Dom and Tom are conducting a cleanup. Now, Domino doesn't seem all that torn up that her foster pup was just eaten at the end of last issue. Uh, she uses that gross Krakoa cannon arm that she's got to burn up a bunch of the remaining zombies. She and Tom discuss what might have caused this, to which Domino suggests that it might have been an, inf- an infection of Krakoa itself. We jump back to the lab, and it looks like whatever it was that Krakoa purged last issue was exactly what we theorized it just might be. A tumor. At least that's what the uh, big-brained beast is suggesting, and uh, I mean, I ain't, I ain't about to argue with him. Hank's mind begins to spin at the possibilities here. He tries to figure out ways they might use this to their advantage, like almost uh, weaponizing this uh, tumor. Now, Reyes ain't too keen on none of that and suggests that Hank maybe keep it in his pants for now. Beast takes a peep through his microscope at a sample of the tissue, and it actually winds up crawling up the lenses of the microscope, smashes through, and breaks his glasses in the process. 
To which Dr. Reyes is all, see? She then suggests that Bista maybe get an X-Force team out into the drink to perform some surgery. Next up, an info page, and it's Sage's intelligence report re the tumor. Now, we have Black Tom and Cypher. They both use their, you know, respective methods to communicate with Krakoa about this metastatic infection. After which, Krakoa claims no knowledge. So, huh, I wonder if the thousands upon thousands of mutants currently living here might have something to do with it. I wonder. Back to comics, and we have Wolverine, Forge, and the no-longer-dead Quentin Choir preparing to dive into this trench in order to operate. And I gotta say, I really thought Quentin's body was in Russia with Mikhail right now. And if that's the case, you gotta assume that X-Factor wouldn't have been able to, you know, give the thumbs up and verify his death. Unless, of course, we're working under the uh, idea that X-Force is above all of that sort of protocol. Or maybe I'm even less observant than I had always assumed I was, and uh, this was made clear before. Anyway, whatever it is, uh, Forge, he's here, he's still acting like a chucklehead, and he proudly shows off his underwater flamethrower. Now, before they can dive, Phoebe Cuckoo arrives to give old QQ a smooch and implore him not to die again. Well, I guess Quentin does remember that they had a relationship then. Uh, it seemed like he, you know, last died like moments after they declared that, but uh, I guess she wouldn't have forgotten, so I guess it's all good. Finally, Forge, Quentin, and Logan dive. Now, Wolverine's adamantium-laced bones cause him to be, you know, like really, really heavy, so he sinks like a stone really, really quick. He makes contact with the bottom at 8,600 meters. Now, there he, he discovers the remains of the USS Siege, and it's full of dead bodies, and uh, they are rendered horrifically. <laughs> they are very unpleasant to look at, but very, very well done. Now, Logan keeps walking until he comes upon the entrance to the trench, which takes it even deeper. Of course, Forge can't help but to give him the old Nietzsche line about uh, looking into the abyss, because, uh, well, it's easy, and of course he does. Wolverine is then attacked by a zombie, who he makes short work of before tossing it into the trench. And we can see a whole lot of tentacles emerging from the depths, but then suddenly Wolverine finds himself stood before a giant eye. And I think we're supposed to be getting Lovecraftian horror vibes here, or at least that's what I'm getting. Uh, the thing with the eye then swims away, leaving Wolverine very, very shaken. He tells Forge that he saw a god. Now, Forge shakes this off, suggesting that uh, Wolverine just needs his oxygen adjusted, which, I mean, in the real world would be the correct response, but we got to remember, this is the fantastical Marvel universe where this kind of stuff happens all the friggin' time. So, eh, I don't know. Now, Quentin, he's then nabbed by a tentacle, but it doesn't seem to belong to the eye horror that Wolverine just saw. This looks more like a mutated hammerhead shark. QQ blasts it through the dome while waxing poetic about Krakoa and finally having something to live for. I mean, he, he did used to date Gwenpool. What is she? Chop liver? Eh? Mm. Now, when speaking of Krakoa, he comments that the mutants just trust it to be there for them, without thinking about anything that might lurk below the surface. Now, as he puts it, quote, everybody's got something rotten inside them. And that might just be our main takeaway for the issue. Uh, you know, these are the things that uh, we and the characters aren't supposed to be thinking about, at least not openly. Anyway, he ponders this, and he finds himself surrounded by some nasty, mutated sea beasts. 
Wolverine and Forge dive in to help fight them off, but it looks as though this might just be the end for the three of them. These beasties just keep on coming. When all appears to be lost, however, they find themselves aided by... Any guesses? I mean, we're very deep underwater, so I mean, it's a short list of possibilities. Alright, it's Namor. It's Namor. Of course it's Namor. Now, Namor lambasts the mutants for being kind of worthless and delivers some commentary about the nature of their relationship with Krakoa. He compares the parasitic infection that Krakoa purged to the mutants themselves. Now, we know that Krakoa is like an energy sucker, an energy vampire of sorts, right? Which makes it kind of a parasite. But Namor posits that it's a two-way street with the mutants making their home on it. They are also parasitic toward Krakoa. He also questions Xavier's entire mission statement for this era as being uh, maybe less than genuine. And, I mean, this isn't the first time he's voicing that take either. It's a really good observation, and it might just be our second big takeaway of this issue. The Submariner then sends the mutants home, but dismisses them, really, while he deals with the situation all by his lonesome. Then an info page. It's uh, Wolverine's poetry page here. Uh, Well, okay, not really, but it's Logan talking about how insignificant he felt when stood before that great big Lovecraftian Ihara, and he vows to kill it. And from here, it would appear that we've uh, run out of pages, so uh, that's where the story ends. Kind of abrupt, but uh, okay, we'll take it. Uh, Next episode, we're back in the wild with New Mutants number 15, but, uh, well, let's talk about X-Force. This was a pretty good issue. I was not expecting to enjoy this one so much. Um, I know we're not supposed to judge books by their cover, but uh, just thinking about Wolverine fighting a uh, underwater creature uh, (laughs) really didn't uh, spark a whole lot of confidence in me here, but this was a... uh, I mean, no pun intended, it was a much deeper issue than uh, I came into this expecting. So let's talk about our takeaways here. Um, Main takeaway, I feel, are uh, Quentin's thoughts here. And his thoughts were that everybody has something rotten hidden inside them. And I mean, I I mention that because this just goes right into like our wheelhouse for theories. Uh, We've long theorized about the potential rottenness just under the surface of Krakoa. In a lot, a lot of different ways here, even in the most benign of scenes here, there's an underlying, like, sinisterness to uh, a lot of these stories. Even going back to the very first issue of X-Men, you know, post-Hoxpox uh, here, we had that, like, weird, like, almost Pleasantville summer's dinner, right? It was just, everything looked kind of okay, and we had our point-of-view character there in Corsair, if you remember. And he is, you know, kind of weirded out, just like we are. And he goes to mention something, and he's kind of shut down. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> he just, he knows something's weird there. And we know something's weird there. There's something rotten just below the surface. And it's, I love that we're actually getting it verbalized here. First, because it kind of validates what we all thought we saw. And second, because it's a pretty good indication that uh, this is something that will be addressed and perhaps even dealt with uh, not too far off into the future. So I like that. Um, now, Quentin was talking about, before he made that comment, how the mutants are just trusting Krakoa to kind of just be there for them. And trust is another, like, really, really big thing for this era. Blind trust in particular, because... Uh, 
We're not asking questions. I mean, we are. <laughs> you know, the readers and the uh, fake-ass analysts are asking these questions, but it's not really coming up all that often in the books here. So, I mean, let's consider some stuff here. The Quiet Council are kind of... I mean, they are the law. They're the government here. The citizens, I guess, the civilians of Krakoa, they just trust that they have their best interests at heart here. And... I mean, let's look through a few of these members. We got Apocalypse, who started a war with Otherworld, <laughs> you know, behind the back of even the Quiet Council. How do you trust someone like that? Uh, I mean, how about Mr. Sinister? We know more about Mr. Sinister than a lot of the characters do, but uh, not a lot of trust there either. There shouldn't be. Uh, Exodus is out there indoctrinating children. I mean, he's not exactly lying to them, but he is, uh, he is, uh, making them, well, for lack of a better term, uh, maybe militant? He's really, really forming, uh, helping them form their opinions in a very extreme sort of way. Uh, we have an entire quarter of the Quiet Council devoted to the Hellfire Club, or the Hellfire, um, trading company, and, yeah, I mean, even the most trustworthy member of that little crew, uh, Kitty Pride, uh, I don't know that we can trust her anymore. It's it's weird. Um, look at things like one of our favorite subjects, the Crucible. They just trust that this is the way things are supposed to be because they were told that's the way things are supposed to be. Uh, the Festival of Swords, heading off into the great unknown, literally, um, out of a weird prophecy that they just blindly trusted. X-Force being the mutant CIA above the law. They don't have to answer to, apparently, they don't have to answer to anybody. They don't have to answer to the council. They don't have to answer to the five. They don't have to answer to a soul here. So they're working. They're basically setting up Krakoa's best interests in in, in the way they see fit. Uh, the resurrection protocols. Another thing that we are just being told to trust, and the characters are as well. And Quentin Choir. Being someone who has been through the Resurrection Protocols, what, a dozen times to this point? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's trustworthy for some, but uh, as we know from our, the recent issue of New Mutants, Scout ain't too sure, Madeline Pryor ain't too sure, uh, but you know, she's not around to ask those questions anymore. I really like the idea that we're finally getting some sort of... Uh, Skepticism, I guess um, And I think we're going to see more of this during, Throughout the uh, the Reign of X um, era Or, I guess, quarter or third I don't know how long Hickman's run's going But uh, I've heard that this is either the second quarter Or the second third of it So I guess we'll uh, I guess maybe sales will dictate uh, how long it goes But uh, let's, uh, let's go to the other takeaway we have here Namor's take now, he suggests that the mutants are the parasite in the uh, Krakoan relationship here. And there is a bit to support that. And, I mean, a lot of it goes back to uh, what Quentin said about how the mutants just trust Krakoa to be there for them. And it's Krakoa is providing. Krakoa is giving life. And I think, I think maybe it was Beast in this issue who made a comment saying, like, Krakoa gives and take, takes away. And we do know that uh, Krakoa is... You know, an energy siphoning um, entity So it's an interesting uh, take here That uh, one that's always been considered parasitic Is being, you know, the, uh, the victim of parasites in the, in the mutants here Who 
really just seemed to be uh, in a fool's paradise in a way. Uh, now, Namor also mentioned uh, that Xavier's plans are maybe not genuine. Maybe there's a little bit of nefariousness to them, uh, more so than good. And that's kind of why he refused to join up back in the first place during um, one of the latter issues of Hoxpox, where Xavier went to visit him, and he's just like, "Yeah, you know, get out of here. I'm not. I'm not doing that." And it's cool that his opinion hasn't changed on the matter. And uh, I wonder how much of that might have to do with the fact that he's not on Krakoa. You know, we've talked about the uh, the Krakoa effect in you know controlling or modifying behaviors, and since Namor never went. Well, he still uh, he still has the same opinions, and uh, they are still a bit contentious toward uh, the Krakoan populace, I suppose. Uh, let's talk about the art. The art was fantastic. Um, the underwater scenes um, actually made me a little bit uncomfortable. They they were at the same they were at the same time they were way too vast, but they were also claustrophobic. You know, it was excellently done. Um, the coloring, I gotta mention the coloring here because the use of light to kind of uh, illuminate the uh, the under the helmet, uh, uh, Wolverine and Forge and, and Quentin's helmets that they were wearing underwater here, there was like an illumination on their faces, which was really, really beautiful. Just, uh, I mean, a top-tier uh, presentation here with the art. Uh, you know, kudos to everybody involved because it's it was gorgeous. Speaking of which, Wolverine sees a god, which was very, very well done, very, very well drawn. But as a story beat, well, here, here's my problem. I mentioned earlier, like, in the real world, you know, things would be a bigger deal, like like Forge telling him to adjust his oxygen. Here, in the real world, seeing something like this would have been a huge deal. I mean, but we got to think, in the Avengers book right now, Wolverine is dealing with phoenix stuff so to 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 take at face value that this eye beast that he saw was the only thing that he's ever seen that's made him feel insignificant before is kind of a reach i mean just jumping back to the festival of swords there for a minute he fought the summoner on blight smoke which i mean that's a trip and a half that has to make you feel like you don't really exist right i mean that was just upside down and inside out um so i know what they were going for here and in some regard it worked but in another where we actually have this story existing as a part of this fantastical shared universe it really doesn't amount to a whole lot um seeing a god when you spend a lot of your time working shoulder to shoulder with literal gods is, I don't know, it just doesn't seem quite that earth-shaking or spirit-shaking, I should say. Uh, Forge, he's still a douche. <laughs> I don't know why he's been given this personality. Uh, I don't like it. He just comes across like the, the frattest of the frat boys here. He's just very, very douchey. Um, let's go to Beast We'll wrap up talking about Beast here uh, The thought I mean, he got giddy When he saw this uh, tumor or uh, infection here And he immediately thought of ways That they could use it to their benefit I.e. weaponizing it I mean, this is kind of like a Maybe there's like a 6 or a 7 On the current year Hank McCoy scale Of, of Mad Science but uh, 
I can't say that it doesn't fit the current take on him. Um, and also, I mean, he's a curious guy. This is one act of uh, badness from Hank McCoy that I can almost excuse because he's always been presented as a curious guy and a, a very analytical guy and a guy who was who was playing with science. I mean, that's how he became, you know, the the bouncing blue or initially gray beast in the first place here by playing with chemicals and playing with science and. Uh, I don't think he's going to eat this tumor like he drank the uh, the serum that gave him the fur, but I do appreciate him being presented as a scientifically curious uh, fellow, which it rings true to me. And I got to admit to being kind of tickled when the uh, the slime came up the uh, microscope and bro- broke through, and, and Hank's response was, "Oh dear." I, <laughs> I thought that was uh, that was very very fitting. So I'll give Beast a pass for this issue here. But overall, had a heck of a good time with this one. This was really, really good stuff. Gave us a lot to think about, a lot to consider, and hopefully planted some seeds that are going to uh, to sprout very, very soon because this was very, very well done. So kudos to everybody involved. Had a good time with this one. I hope you did as well. And that will do it for our discussion of this issue. But before we jam out, let's hop into the mailbag. Now, we got two letters today, both about Generation X Volume 2, number 2, which is uh, really, really cool to see. We're going to kick things off with Jesse, who says, Generation X number 2 is like issue 1. Not as horrible as I remembered, but still not good. Again, we get all the background cameos that I like. If anything, it answers the question of whatever happened to Shark Girl. Oh, she's a background character in Generation X. I guess that's okay. Morph in hindsight, I had to look up these names again, are just forgettable. But not forgettable like Forget Me Not, who I love. Oh, Forget Me Not is so much fun, isn't he? <laughs> uh, a week ago, you could have asked me who these two perfectly human-looking, boring guys were from Generation X Volume 2. And all I could tell you is that one had white hair and the other changed into someone he was near. These two are prime candidates for the leading spots in Fallen Angels Volume 3, Still Falling. At no point does the writer make me feel connected to to these two. So far, the other kids, minus Kid Omega, are flat characters that add nothing to the story. It's sad because we had two issues into this volume and I was more hooked and invested in Volume 1 with only the first page of Page Just Jogging. And you're right. Oh, you're right. Now, let's talk about Forget Me Not. Uh, actually, let's let's not talk about Forget Me Not. But uh, anybody who's listening who doesn't know who Forget Me Not is, uh, look them up. It's very, very fun. Uh, it kind of like teeters on the brink of heartbreaking and hilarious. It's, it's some good stuff. Um, now, I mean, let's talk about Generation X Volume 1, because that is far more interesting and engaging. Um, that first page of page jogging, um, I mean, I mean that, that just, it felt like we were meeting these kids. And we were meeting these kids in a, a different way, where now, I mean, everything's so formulaic. You know, back then, and I mean, it wasn't that long ago, and I don't want to talk like those comics were just so much better. I just feel like those comics presented themselves as comics and not as pitches for Netflix original series. That was a comic book that wasn't pretending to be anything but a comic book. Not to say that Volume 2 is pretending not to be a comic book, but we were more ingrained in what comics were back in you know 1994. 
all of those characters felt like they were introduced organically. Uh, they all had a little bit of time to shine. Um, we talk about that right now with the current year X Factor stuff, where each character is getting a little moment to shine here. So we're building upon every single character every single time out. You mentioned Shark Girl being background, because that's all Shark Girl is, is background. It's like, hey, we need... I mean, this is a mutant book. We need someone who is clearly a mutant for the background. Oh, okay. Well, we have the uh, the brain in the jar. We got the big glob. You know, we got the uh, you know the chewed bubble gum with the organs inside it, and we got the shark girl. Let's uh, let's throw them in the back uh, of the uh, of these uh, big fight scenes here, which renders them to as being nothing more than wallpaper. I mean, if you did a uh, if you did a shark girl action figure, it could just be a uh, a piece of cardboard. That stands in the background of your uh, of your play sets. <laughs> That's all this character is going to be. I mean, Paige jogging, and she runs into uh, she runs into Jubilee in the beginning here, and peels off her sweaty skin, just showing us what she does. Uh, grosses Jubilee out. Then then M shows up, and she's kind of a, you know catty with both of them. That felt real. That felt. And I mean, these were my. Uh, you know, cohorts in age back then, so maybe that's why it felt a little bit more real to me. But here, it's just the current year formula. It's like, okay, well, we need a point of view character, and he's going to be the most normal. He's going to be the Bob Newhart of the book, right? And then he's just going to take in all these weird sights. He's going to see the shark girl. He's going to see the the young kid who looks like an old lady. Yeah, it's it just feels so formulaic. And uh, as such, it just doesn't feel organic. It doesn't give these kids any reason to be together. Now, Jesse continues. Jubilee's comments on trying something new with these students and then laying out a plan that they used way back in the student student squad era of New Mutants Academy X was a smack in the forehead. I can't remember if this is the way they were going, but it's more like what they did with Spider-Man and the X-Men or Avengers Academy, where they took the troubled students that could become trouble and threw them together to keep an eye on them. I just don't see Eye Boy or Nature Girl going evil, though. I just don't dig this cast. Not good. Yeah. Yeah, Jubilee, <laughs> Jubilee's comments there. She's like, yeah, we're going to do something different. Exactly the same thing we've done a few times already. Oh, okay. <laughs> it just... It's just another way that this just doesn't feel organic. It doesn't give us any reason to care about these kids. And I can't completely blame the creative team for this because it's just the way Marvel does things now. And it's something that I talked about during the discussion of Gen X number two. It's like these books are basically told, hey, you've got, and I don't know any of this, so this is just, you know, conjecture. It's like you've been given 12 issues. Do what you can with these 12 issues. And all of the writers that get these magical 12 issues that they need to fill come up with the same exact plan. It's like, well, we're going to spend most of that 12 issues putting together our team. (laughs) And then they're going to have maybe one adventure. And then you're going to cancel the book because by the time we actually had a team, people stopped reading. And I feel like that's kind of... I hope I'm wrong, but I feel like that's kind of the path that this book is on here. We're just going to be getting to know you for almost the entire thing. Then they'll have their mission. Then they'll be canceled. It's just it's just the way things are, unfortunately. Uh, now, Jesse continues. You did mention the Generation X Collector's Preview this episode, and I had to go dig mine out. Apparently, I own three copies of this. I have a direct edition, a newsstand edition, and a reader's copy. Has there ever been any books that you own that you're surprised to see you own multiple copies of? 
Short answer is yes. <laughs> yes, there are. And uh, there are copies of books that even to this day, I won't even think I have them. So like if I see them in the wild, I'll grab them. And it's it feels like it's always the same books. It's I think I own like something like seven copies of Heroes Reborn, The Return Number 1. Because every time I see it, I think I don't have it. I don't know why that issue in particular, maybe, uh, who did the cover for that? Was that Carlos Pacheco? Maybe that just really, really jumps out at me every time I see it, but I always wind up buying it. Because I, I always, like, oh, I don't, ha- I can't have that one. I'd remember that cover, and then I get home and it's like, oh, yeah, this one again. And I'm sure there are many more. I know I did a blog post ages ago talking about, um, Buying books over and over again Because I just didn't realize I had them I'd have to I mean, there there were like 2,000 posts on the blog I couldn't tell you exactly which one it is And it would take me all weekend to dig out Which one it is So I I won't (laughs) Just uh, suffice it to say I know exactly where you're coming from with that Jesse continues The cover to this preview is beautiful No one draws a better chamber than Bacolo I felt like I was 15 again Looking through this and reading through articles It was a gathering of info for the entire X-Men universe at the time, giving us a course guide for the school, a list of Xavier alumni, and a guide to 30 years of fabulous mutant fashion that could be revisited with the Hellfire Gala coming up. Yeah, the uh, preview is totally a uh, wheelhouse piece for me, uh, both in the gestalt of it as well as uh, just the ephemeraness of it. I, I absolutely adore it as well. And uh, I, I haven't looked at it in a little while, but might, we might have to dig that out to uh, go through uh, the fashion with the, uh, with the big gala coming up, see if, <laughs> see if we get anything uh, repeating or maybe with a little bit of influence. We'll, uh, we'll take a look. Uh, Jesse continues. There are so many articles from the creators about the new series, along with updates for trading cards, the animated series, and the Toy Biz figure line. It was a fun jaunt back down Massachusetts Academy Lane. If anything, to set it apart, the Volume 2 series should have been held here and not at the Central Park location. Other than the occasional visitation of two or three of the original members, there is nothing that ties this new series to the old one. I think I agree with you there. Um, I don't know what the point of the whole Central Park thing was. I think it was just a... I think the pendulum swung a little bit far because before this, weren't wasn't the mansion in limbo because of the Terrigan Mists? So, like, here we have it in Central Park where it's just like, okay, well, we were out of your face for a while. Now we're very much in your face. And uh, deal with it <laughs> was basically the uh, impression that I got from it. Uh, I think it would have been cool to uh, set Jubilee and her team up Somewhere else Just give them a little bit of personality here. Give them a reason to exist Because I mean If they're in Central Park And we're going to be focusing on Five or six students here There are like dozens of other students Why are we going to pay attention to them And not these It's eh, Just no reason to exist Now Jesse wraps up with So until we get an X-book That doesn't end with someone At some point saying To me my X-Men Make mine X-lapsed well, that's, uh, that's good. That's music to my ears because uh, that means we're going to be together for a while because there will never be a book where someone <laughs> is not going to say to me, my X-Men. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there. I, I consider you among the top tier of Generation X fans and historians, so it's always cool to hear your thoughts on a uh, discussion of uh, the Generation X book. So thank you. Uh, Next, we got Evan also talking about Generation X V2 number 2. 
He says, a significant improvement over issue one, setting up a status quo for the characters rather than just assembling them all in one place. I was in on Generation X from the ground floor as well. I stuck with the series until around issue 60. I remember the Monet the Vampire Slayer cover being the next one after I quit. I just, I just sort of lost steam on it after a while. The early days were notably weird, like Chamber and Skin's road trip where they met up with the Executioner and Howard the Duck. Chamber was always a favorite of mine, so visually striking and a constant reminder that powers can be more of a burden than a blessing. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to remember when Monet the Vampire Slayer was. Was that during the Farber-Faber run? Okay, I'm back. I just checked. I had to dig through my long box there. Yes, that is actually the final issue of the J. Faber run before Generation X turned Counter-X under uh, Warren Ellis's plots and... Was it Brian Wood? I, I, don't, I don't want to get up again and check the long box, but uh, yeah, that was an end of an era there. Um, I wonder what your thoughts would have been had you stuck around for just another month or two, Evan. I remember that was kind of a like a 50-50 split among fans when uh, they announced that Generation X was going to go counter X. Uh, some people were really, really stoked for it. Other people felt like uh, Jay Faber was finally, you know, kind of getting the puka stink off of the book here, and he really had a fun direction with the books here. Um, it was uh, it was just a teen book. It was it felt very much like, uh, I guess in retrospect, it felt kind of like the New Mutants, uh, where we just had kids kind of acting like kids. Uh, they opened the school up to uh, human students around this time. I think Emma's sister, Adrian, was a big bad during this. It was It was pretty fun stuff. I remember thinking it was a pretty refreshing change of pace after the Puka stuff. But I, I think I kind of fell in the middle, where I, I was open to the to the change. Um, I don't know that I was 100% excited for it, but I was open to, for it, because it was... Change was just in the air at Marvel at this point. Um, we had the, you know, Gemma's Casada taken over, and just things were kind of on its ear, and it was a very, very exciting time to be a fan of Marvel Comics. Um, I really, really enjoy that time and look back on it with a great deal of fondness, despite there, you know, being some some misfires, of course. I mean, every every uh, every endeavor has uh, the possibilities of falling short. But, uh, yeah, I wonder what would have happened if you'd stuck around, if you'd uh, been hooked till the very end of the volume, which was only, like, Ten issues later <laughs> But uh, I wonder if you'd have stuck around If you'd uh, experienced the counter Xness of it But I want to thank you so much For both listening to and writing in On a Generation X lapsed episode here Again, I always say it But uh, the Sunday specials, I don't know I don't know if people want them <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if it's just me talking to myself Or uh, if folks enjoy A little bit of a change of pace From our current year stuff So let me know. Let me know what you think. Uh, and you could do that a few different ways. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an old-fashioned email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You could find uh, the blog, blog posts and show notes at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. It's also the home of X-Lapsed Origins, a series of articles taking a look at seminal moments in X-History that are still relevant to this day. Starting off with a look at the old Captain Britain stories, where we're going to meet Saturnine, Mad Jim Jaspers, the Furies, do some stuff with Otherworld. It's going to be an interesting time, and so far it has been. There have been, I believe, seven chapters uh, there on the blog, and as this show goes up, there will be a compilation post collecting all seven uh, for easy receipt and digestion. 
They're going to be listed under X-Men Archives featuring Captain Britain number one. And uh, after that, we're just a couple of chapters away from the arrival of Alan Moore. So that's going to be some real fun stuff. I cannot wait to revisit these stories. I've been threatening this for a very long time. So uh, I hope folks are uh, taking a peek and hopefully enjoying what they see and uh, maybe getting inspired to check out some of these old stories for yourselves. So... Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com is where you can find that. Uh, you can chat us up on Facebook where we're getting a steady stream of new uh, new members here. So thank you all so much for joining us on this uh, on this little trip here. It's a 90s X-Men on Facebook if you're interested. Uh, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to ChrisandReggie.Podbean.com, available on all your noise aggregation devices and applications. So... That's where we're going to stop for the day. I want to thank you all so, so much for listening. It really, really means a lot to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.